Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and African American Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Richard Blackett about his new book, Samuel Ringgold Ward, A Life of Struggle. Dr. Richard Blackett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Uh, well, Dr. Blackett, I wonder if you could begin the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself. I am a retired professor of history from Vanderbilt University, where I taught since um, 2002. Before that, I was a professor of history at University of Houston and other places before that. Uh, And my interest is 19th century African-American history, particularly the abolitionist movement. Wonderful. Well, how did you come to this particular project? I, many years ago, in 1986, I published a collection of biographical essays on African-American figures who were involved in the anti-slavery movement. Uh, And uh, I had done a considerable amount of work on Ward, but because of the many gaps in his life, I didn't feel in the end that I had a command of him, that I had control of the individual. So I decided not to use him. Uh, and the book was published uh, with the, the other essays that I had planned. And years later, in fact, only recently, two years ago, uh, I was asked if I would write a biography in this series that Yale University Press was contemplating on Black Lives is the the title of the series. Uh, And I thought it would be a great opportunity to go back and see if I could get a hold of Mr. Ward that I couldn't all those many years ago. Uh, The problem was, of course, that this came in the middle of the pandemic. So it meant I couldn't visit any libraries. Uh, I couldn't go on the road doing research. Uh, And fortunately, I had collected my old notes uh, from that earlier project and had deposited them at the archive at Vanderbilt University. And they kindly, the archivist, one of the archivists kindly uh, found the box where all these notes were. Uh, and made a copy of all my, the folder on Ward that I had compiled and sent it to me. And that was the basis of of the book. Uh, In the meantime, since 1986, there had been a, a number of collections of the writings and letters of black 19th century figures that made it possibly for me to use those that information to knit together some of the information that had eluded me back in ni- in the early 1980s and that is how I came to to tackle Mr Ward so some of the gaps I managed to fill but as you would have seen from uh from the biography there are still a number of them that that remained elusive so the, it's a biography of a, a relatively elusive character Wonderful. So I, I'm wondering, if could you tell us about where some of those gaps still exist in Ward's story? 
Well, there there were a number there are a number of gaps. Uh, for instance, I couldn't locate where he was born on the eastern shore of Maryland. After all, his parents escaped with him when he was only three months old. And the first thing we hear of that is that in the opening line of his autobiography, which was published in 1855 in London, but he doesn't he isn't very specific about where it was he was born in the Eastern Shore. It is possible that he did not know because his parents kept from him the fact that he was born a slave until he was age 24. So he was a grown man. Uh, and throughout his lectures that I managed to pull together, he never talks very much about where he could have been born. He didn't speculate. Now, there are a number of family members, extended family members, cousins of Ward, who escaped in the, the early to mid-1820s. For instance, Henry Highland Garnett uh, is a cousin of his. He also, his family escaped. And another line of the Ward family, who later became a very prominent bishop in the AME church, he has, the, his uh, parents escaped and they went to Pennsylvania. So I suspect roughly where he was born in the eastern shore of Maryland, but I couldn't tell you for certain. Uh, the, the folks at the Maryland Historical Society have been pulling their hair out for years trying to find out where he was born, and they were unable to, to be more specific. Um, where his children died in upstate New York, it's not always clear when they were born uh, or when the, exactly the, some of them died in, in their infancy. And then there's the big gap of Ward's later years in Jamaica, uh, particularly after 1866. I can't tell you very much about him, uh, and nobody who has looked at his life can tell you very much about those later years uh, in Jamaica. So those are some of the gaps that I wasn't able to fill. But there were many others that I managed to put together, pull together from different sources uh, so that I, I felt comfortable being able to tell a coherent story of his life in spite of the gaps. And all biographers, I must say, are frustrated by gaps, but this is particularly uh, full of gaps, this life. Yeah, and you, you do, I think, a wonderful job in this biography of, of filling in those gaps and telling, like you said, the coherent story. Um, so let's start sort of at the beginning. What can you tell us about Ward's parents and his early childhood? As I said, I don't know where we know who his parents are because he tells us their names. Uh, they escaped and went to, the, to southern New Jersey, uh, in the area that is known as the Pine Barrens. Uh, they lived there a number of years until uh, one of the extended family members was recaptured from that place and taken back into slavery in Maryland. And the ward and ward's parents decided that it was no longer safe. So they left for New York City, uh, where they joined that other line of the, the extended family, the, the Garnets, who had moved there earlier. 
Uh, the Garnets, of course, had changed their name to Garnet in an attempt to hide their identity. It didn't work. Uh, but the Wards nonetheless established themselves uh, in New York City uh, in a place that they thought was considerably safer uh, than southern New Jersey. But New York City, Manhattan, New York City in 1820s and 30s is not a safe place. It is a rough place. Uh, but it's also a, a place that is vibrant and full of life uh, for African-Americans who, who are creating communities within uh, the thriving city. And two sort of events happen that you speak about in this book uh, very early in sort of Ward's life and his uh, sort of Ellis and sort of teenage years as well. Uh, could you tell us about the events that happened at Chatham uh, Chapel and the events with the associate that he has in Poughkeepsie? Um, and how does Ward react to these events? And what impact did these events have on Ward's understanding of the place of black that black people held in the U.S.? Um. In 18, we have the formation of the American Anti-Slavery Society in New York City in the early 1830s uh, that, meant a that met a considerable amount of resistance among uh, whites in the city who saw it as a threat. Uh, Ward, as a teenager, uh, who came of age politically and otherwise by participating in these meetings. Uh, there are a series of riots that occur. Well, riots is the wrong word. Attacks on the black community by whites in 1834 uh, that blacks resisted uh, successfully to some extent. And Ward was part of that resistance. Uh, and for his pains, he was he was arrested uh, rather than the people who were doing the attacking. Uh, Ward and others were arrested, and as a young man, was thrown into a prison uh, that is notorious in this period, uh, a prison along with other criminals and other uh, characters who. Uh, oh, the society thought needed to be put away for long periods of time. Uh, so Ward is a 17-year-old, uh, faces for the first time in his life that kind of violent protest against blacks and the anti-slavery movement more generally uh, in this period violent attacks that were happening in most of the major urban centers of the North uh, in the 1830s and early 1840s. In Philadelphia, in New York, uh, you have these attacks on the black community. So to some extent, this is where Ward came of age politically uh, and where he sort of devoted himself in subsequent years to becoming part of this larger movement uh, to fight against slavery, the, the abolition of slavery, and what later on he would call Negro hate or ag against racial discrimination. Uh, so those are the twin pillars of the movement that he, he and his contemporaries are involved in, the, the movement to, to emancipate the slaves, to abolish slavery, 
as well as to uh, remove racial restrictions on blacks, uh, on free blacks in the, in northern cities. So those are the twin pillars of this movement uh, that the young man becomes an integral part of in the years in the 1830s. He becomes a prominent, he becomes a lecturer. He is employed by the American Anti-Slavery Society as a lecturer uh, and becomes one of the one of the fine orators of the of the period before the Civil War. And as, as far as Poughkeepsie, we know he moved to Poughkeepsie to take up a teaching appointment. And in at, uh, while he was there, he was furthering his education, working with a local tutor. Uh, and that local tutor decided, he and the tutor decided that they were going to create a sort of a local literary society. And they started assembling names of people who would participate in this society. And Ward, to his absolute horror, discovered uh, when the society was about to be launched that his name was excluded from the list of participants. And that is one of his first major encounters with that curious American phenomenon, as he would, he would call it, in which one's apparent friends were willing to discriminate against you, to exclude you in order they thought the better to promote the movement. And for Ward, that was a sort of damning indictment of the society and the people uh, and Americans generally. And he thought in 1838 that he would, his future was not in the United States. He would leave the United States and in fact, he planned to go to Trinidad, um, where after 1838, at the end of the apprenticeship scheme, Trinidad, Trinidad major plantation owners were looking for labor, alternative sources of labor, because the freedmen had left the plantation in droves. Now, what could not have survived on a plantation? Let me be... Although he's a big man, although he's a robust man, uh, plantation labor is a, a special sort of labor. Uh, for anyone who has ever tried to cut sugarcane would know that you, you that is not a skill that one acquires overnight. And Ward, but Ward nonetheless had so despaired of America that he was willing to, to take his chances outside of the United States. So for Ward, his life has always been one step away from giving up on America. When he thought there was promise and hope, he stayed. But when he thought that hope was gone, he left. And he and he would and he and when he left, he left for good. I mean, as that that section that in the book where I deal with his years in Canada. The month after he, he arrived in Canada, he wrote Frederick Douglass and he said to Douglass, Fred, take America, it's yours. I have nothing to do with it. You can take its slavery and you can take its free black life. I am not, this is not part of my life anymore. Uh, so he he was willing, willing to step off the pages of uh, US history, which I think to some extent, 
accounts for why we don't know more about him. Because when he left, when, when 19, and they, of his contemporaries, he is the only one who left who never returned. Uh, some like Alexander Cromwell went for a number of years to places like Liberia, but they returned at the end of their life. Ward never. Uh, and uh, to some extent, that that is one of the great gaps in his life, because when you leave America, when you you turned your back on America in the 19th century, and I suspect it still exists today, when you turn your back on America, you turn your back on its, its history drops you. You disappear from its history because, in effect, you are no longer American. And that has been one of the the problems I've had to face in trying to understand Ward. Fascinating. So uh, we talked about the the, the 1830s, and we'll get to sort of the later parts of his life too. Um, but what sort of work does Ward do during the 1840s, and where does he do it? The 1840s, he is spent in upstate New York, in the area uh, around... Peterborough, uh, that was dominated by Gerald Smith, who is the largest landowner in the state in this period, but who is a, a staunch supporter of, of anti-slavery uh, and committed uh, by the early 1840s to a, an integrated attack on American slavery. So Peterborough, it, is, it, it was recorded, was possibly the most integrated place in the, in a, in a, in the northern states. Um, so it was a, it's a place of relative comfort uh, for someone like Ward. In addition, he, early in the 1840s, he becomes a pastor of a congregationalist church, a white congregationalist church in upstate New York, almost in Canada, that far north. Uh, and as such, he became the first person of his generation of the antebellum period that would pastor, a black person that would pastor a white congregation. And after he leaves that congregation in South Butler, he moves to Cortland, um, further south in, in upstate New York, where he passed as a second white congregation. We know less about that congregation uh, than the first one. But in both instances, then, Ward is the pastor, is a congregationalist minister to a white church in which the only black congregants, it appears, are his family members. So it's an interesting and curious uh, development. But it's one that Ward at least believed meant, uh, opened up a promise of America that he hadn't anticipated and that few of his contemporaries anticipated. But it also increased pressure on him and on the congregation to prove that it was doable. Because it didn't take much of a skeptic to realize that this was totally out of character. 
in American society. The church, as we know it even today, is, most, is possibly the most segregated place on a Sunday. So this was an experiment, as Ward saw it. Uh, we don't have the views of his congregants, but as far as Ward was concerned, it was an experiment that had the potential to influence the future of American society uh, and possibly break down some of the barriers, racial barriers that existed. It may have been a fool's errand, but nonetheless, it was one he thought that needed to be taken. So he is, while he's a Congregationalist minister, he's also one of the leading figures in the Liberty Party, which is the first, clearly, one, one issue platform party. And that party, is, and that issue is the abolition of slavery, the emancipation of the slaves. And that Liberty Party uh, contests two elect presidential elections in the early 1840s, and they got totally wiped out. Uh, and by the late 1840s, some members of the Liberty Party would drift into the Free Soil Party, which was not as rigidly committed to anti-slavery, although its platform is a potentially anti-slavery platform. But Ward would have none of it. And Ward could not understand who, how people, particularly black people who could vote, in the North could cast their ballot for a party that was not openly opposed to slavery, a party in whose members there were slaveholders, for instance, the Whig Party. The Democratic, the Democratic Party is a lost cause as far as most of Wards and his contemporaries are concerned. But for most, for many Blacks, the alternative was to the Democratic Party was the Whig Party and therefore they threw their lot behind the Whig Party because the Whig Party at least opened up possibilities for bringing about significant change, although it never did. Uh, and for Ward, that was blasphemous. He would not tolerate people who were willing to bend their knees, as he would see it, to pro-slavery parties in order to get a few crumbs uh, from the table of the Whigs. So um, that meant that he was forever at loggerheads with many of his contemporaries who he, who he condemned in no uncertain terms for voting the way that they did. Uh, so he remained one of the leading voices of the Liberty Party until he left for Canada in 1851. Uh, and he also in that decade edited a newspaper uh, called The Impartial Citizen that is, was a contemporary and a competitor to Douglas's news, Frederick Douglass's newspaper. Uh, it never got the kind of, it never had the sort of reach of Frederick Douglass's newspaper, nor did it win the kind of support that Douglass's newspaper uh, garnered. After all, Douglas's newspaper is bankrolled by friends from England who, who put a considerable amount of money uh, in his effort. 
and who continued to support it over the years. Ward, Ward was penny pinching uh, in order to keep that newspaper afloat. Uh, and like all many contemporary editors, he spent an inordinate amount of time trying to raise money to keep the newspaper afloat, as well as pleading with subscribers to pay up. Uh, it drove him, it drove him, he, he just begged. He, it, it, it became, and there are moments when it's, it's kind of heartbreaking to, to listen to him plead for people, not strangers, but people who had agreed to subscribe, who never sent in their subscriptions. Um, so he was always living hand to mouth. Uh, and that is one of the threads of Ward's life that run through his entire... He was always in debt. And uh, he was always... He wasn't... He wasn't profligate. He, was, he, he, was, he didn't throw his money away. He didn't squander his money. He didn't live the high life. He was a person who just could not find a way to live within his means, uh, to provide for his family, and to live the sort of life that he thought a man of his stature deserved. He had, he had done all America asked him to do in order to achieve some standing in the society, and yet he could never achieve it. Uh, he became an incredibly educated man. He dabbled in all sorts of things. Uh, he tried to become a lawyer. He tried to become a doctor. He was an editor of a newspaper. He was a famous orator, and yet money was always short. And the family was always living close to poverty, even as a minister of a church. So those congregations that he pastored were small, although the second one was larger than the first. Nonetheless, they were small and and could not provide him with what he's the sort of support he needed to sustain a reasonable life. So this man who had done everything that America said you should do in order to advance, could not adv be advance. And as far as Ward was concerned, uh, the overwhelming problem was ra his race. Uh, even among people that were his friends. Uh, and he, in that sense, he was not alone. Douglas and others of his contemporaries always had uh, sometimes drag out, knock down differences with white abolitionists because of what they thought as their, um, the way they were treated, uh, the lack of respect. Um, and Wards, Wards is compounded by the fact that he just seems, it just seems incapable of making it. And that's that's one of the sad features of his life. So, I think I've depressed your listeners enough. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, 
I, I, I think it's a, a very good point to make on this. Um, and so I, I wonder if you could tell us just, you, you mentioned Ward's family there. So his wife, his children. Could you tell us just a bit about them as well during this, this time? We don't know much about them. Uh, I think he had four children. He and Emily is his, his Emily is his wife. Um, I think they had four children. I know they had a son uh, who survived Ward into adulthood, is and he had the same name uh, as Ward. Um, I know one of the daughters survived long enough to join him, to join them in Jamaica, but the other daughters, I think, died in infancy. Uh, so we have we have no records of them except uh, at their, their date, date of death, which is, which is a strange testimony to people's lives. Um, and this is not unusual. And uh, Ward, in this regard, uh, is experiencing the same kind of obscurity his family as many of his contemporaries did. Um, so we don't know much about the family. I don't even know if Emily remained in Jamaica or if Samuel, his son, remained in Jamaica. So, uh, and the Jamaican records uh, do not help in this regard. They just have no, uh, there's no line, there's no evidence, there are no documents showing that they remained. Uh, because I think censuses uh, in the in the British Caribbean in the late 19th century were aggregate sentences. They are not censuses like in the in the United States that lists by name and age. So they are aggregate censuses. So there is no way to tell uh, whether or not um, when he died. Even I don't even know when he died. Uh, there are no death certificates that I've been able to find, uh, and there are no the census records don't, are not very helpful in that regard. So it's a family about whom we know little. We know little about his parents. We know when his father and his mother died because he tells us that in his autobiography, um, but that's about it. We know that his mother was older than his father. Uh, but yeah, those are just little snippets. Uh, I found in a lecture that he gave uh, in Ireland in 1854-1855, uh, in which he said his grandmother was owned by an Irishman, slaveholder. But that was it. That's it. That is the extent of his information that he gives on his family's connection, direct family's connection with slavery. Mm-hmm. You, you've spoken a lot about these gaps within uh, Ward's life. Um, do you think that these gaps can be filled or what do you think would be necessary to be able to sort of fill these gaps and sort of have a more complete understanding of Ward's life? I, I pride myself on being very anal when it comes to when it comes to doing research. So it is possible that someone I, 
I, I devote a section of, <coughs> sorry, the chapter in Jamaica with that strange case, court case, uh, involving Ward. And the only reason I found that is that I was going through my notes and I saw that there was some some obscure reference made by an English Baptist minister toward being in court. And I knew of someone who taught at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica for many years, an English guy who was working on the court records of Kingston, of Jamaica in this period. He had, he had retired and moved and was whiling away his years, his late years, somewhere in France, enjoying the good life. And so I wrote a, a friend at the University of the West Indies in Kingston and said, could you, could you put me in touch with this person? And they did. And this, this person had such, took such detailed and copious notes and unfortunately did it as the age of computers came into being. So I wrote him, and immediately he sent me the reference to the court case. There is no way I could have found that unless I had was able to go to Jamaica, which I could I could not because of of COVID. Uh, and it took me about two months to get them for them to get me the transcripts of the of the the court case. So that was that was a sort of serendipitous way in which that major gap was filled. And I don't know what the court case tells me about Ward, except at least this one member of his church thought he was a philanderer. And there's no, there's nothing in Ward's background that would lead me to think he was a philanderer. Uh, but clearly, if the evidence is what it says in the court case, he was living the good life in Jamaica while his wife was in Toronto. Um, and that that was one of the gaps that I think I managed to fill without being able to make any larger point about Ward's life outside of that one little moment in Jamaica in the 1860s. But so that was that was one of that was one of the big gaps that I filled in. I, I managed to fill in. And also I recovered a number of his speeches because of a collection uh, of the collection that was compiled in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the Black Abolitionist Papers Project. That is That was invaluable uh, because they pulled together many, many of Ward's speeches and letters and things that I, I had missed in my earlier research. And so we, we danced around it a little bit, so I, I think we should probably come to this. So uh, ultimately, even though he thinks about leaving the U.S. for a long period of time, Ward does leave the U.S. Um, so what ultimately sort of causes him to leave uh, America, and what's his life like after he leaves uh, the United States? Well, he was again thinking of leaving in 1850. Uh, he had gotten deep in debt 
And he says in his autobiography, although I was not able to find any of the court cases in Boston, uh, that he was brought before a debtor's court and he was forced to, to repay at least a portion of his debt. And uh, he went, he and Emily went on an extension, extensive lecture tour to Ohio and Pen Western Pennsylvania, uh, trying to raise money to pay off uh, this debt. And on his way back, he says in his autobiography that he was reading a newspaper in which there was a report about the Christiana, the shootout of Christiana, Pennsylvania, in which a slaveholder was killed trying to retake a fugitive slave. And he said at that point, he and Emily decided they had to get out of America. It was no longer a place where they could, they could provide for themselves and their family. And on his way back, he arrived at Syracuse in the middle of a famous, most probably the famous fugitive slave case in Syracuse, um, the, the rescue of Jerry, a Missouri uh, runaway, that Ward helped. Ward visited him in prison and seemed to have been involved in the, the movement to free Jerry. Uh, and at that point, because he is now a fugitive slave, following the, following the, uh, and more clearly a fugitive slave because of the rigors of the new law, the 1850 fugitive law, uh, and his plan to leave for Canada anyway, uh, he decided to, to pack it in. Uh, and he, he leaves uh, and his family follows him uh, soon after. Uh, and uh, he set, they settle in Toronto uh, and he becomes immediately involved in the work of the, the newly organized Anti-Slavery Society of Canada. Uh, and they see him as a wonderful asset. They employ him as an agent. So he's back to doing the same sort of things he had stopped doing that had caused him so much angst and despair in America. He's doing the same thing. He's traveling continually. He's lecturing. He's raising money. He's living off a, off a stipend from the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada. It is small. Uh, so he's no better off, and he's doing the same sort of things that he was doing while he was in America. Uh, he has a, a relatively large family. He tries to get uh, a job through the American um, Missionary Association, an anti-slavery missionary association there. But really, that doesn't materialize. Uh, so Ward finds himself in a position where he's living in a new country. Uh, he sees himself as a British, as now as a British subject. Uh, it is a society that potentially has greater opportunities because there isn't the kind of rigorous uh, 
anti-race, sort of racist laws that existed in the United States. Uh, so he, there's an element of hope. Uh, and then, of course, in 1853, they, they Canadian Anti-Slavery Society asked him if he would go to England as their agent. So he leaves Canada and travels to England where he spends a couple of years. He never returns to Canada. Uh, so that is the sort of third phase of his life, those years in England, where he becomes quite the international figure uh, in great demand in the lecture circuit, uh, a man of enormous presence, tall, big, very black, very proud of the fact, unlike his good friend, Frederick Douglass, who he always teased at being interracial. Uh, and Douglass has, I opened the book with that wonderful passage from Douglass, who looks back over uh, sort of 50, 60 years of his involvement in anti-slavery agitation. He talks about Ward as being different, uh, as being a powerful presence uh, among blacks and in the anti-slavery movement. Uh, so in that sense, Ward is able to, ex to use these gifts of his to raise money for the cause of uh, fugitive slaves in Canada that really kept that element of the movement going by the money he remitted uh, to the society in Canada. Without him, that society would not have been able to achieve many of the things that they wanted to in their work among uh, the run runaway communities in Canada. So to that extent, Ward is largely responsible for sustaining uh, that movement. So his years in England are to some extent liberating. Um, uh, he emerges as a person that is recognized wherever he goes as a man of intellect and a man of great sort of a man with a great capacity for hard work and also for uh, philanthropic work. And, uh, but nonetheless, the old problem lingers, money. Uh, so th those, those years in England, uh, again demonstrated Ward's capacity for hard work. He sat in his hotel room in 1855 and wrote in the space of a couple months, two, three months, a 400-page manuscript, which becomes his autobiography. That is amazing. Yeah? Um, and we historians complain that we, you know, it, we take too long to write. You know, and you look back at Ward and he, and he did it without any notes from pure memory. And I was able to check many of the things that he said and he was correct. Um, it's not many things he got wrong. So it shows his capacity to recall things that were critical to his life and his family's life. Uh, 
uh, is another one of his his grace his great assets. Boy. So where should we place someone like uh, Samuel Regold Ward in the histories of Black abolitionists and our understanding of the 19th century? What does his story sort of teach us about this moment? Well, I, I, uh, the best way to answer that, besides giving the details of his life, because it's always hard to compare these individuals, ah, uh, is to do what I did deliberately is to start with what Frederick Douglass's reminiscences and to end with James McEwen Smith's reminiscences about Ward. And in both instances, they square with one another. Um, uh, some of his contemporaries thought he had a short a short fuse that he could blow up unnecessarily. And there's evidence for some of that. But by and large, Ward comes out of that school in New York City, that African free school, that produced an incredible group of alumni. An amazing group of alumni that should... Uh, be the pride and joy of of America, and yet it isn't. Um, Alexander Crummel, who could not get into an Episcopalian seminary because he was black, leaves America and gets his his degree from the University of Cambridge. I think most people would recognize the name, the University of Cambridge. Um, James McEwen Smith could not get into medical school in America, leaves and goes to Scotland where he gets four degrees and returns to America where he opens his business uh, in New York City. Their whole host, William Howard Day, uh, Oberlin graduate, becomes the first black American at the end of the 19th century to be elected president of the school board, of a school board. I mean, you can go through the list of these people and you have to you have to tip your hat to that group of folks and their commitment to self-improvement, uh, their commitment to struggle for the betterment of their people. And Ward is, is front and center of that group. Uh, and the reason that, by and large, he is he is not known as well as the others is, as I said in in, in the opening of this our discussion, is he left the United States. I mean, even in Douglas's opening remarks, uh, you know, he says he died somewhere in a foreign land. You know, it it gets very exotic. Um, I'm sure my Jamaican friends wouldn't think that Jamaica is a, <coughs> is an exotic place, but that's the impression uh, that exile takes you out of mainstream America. And that's why I think we don't know about Ward. But he is in a group of people who have left their mark on, on American history or who we 
who have left their mark on American history because of the rise of the Black Studies movements in the in the in the nineteen sixties and seventies, when people turned their attention to try and find out who were the originators of this struggle for civil rights, and then we started coming up with all these strange names of people. Well, everybody knew Frederick Douglass. In fact, Frederick Douglass. Uh, I try to avoid quoting Frederick Douglass because you know everybody knows Frederick Douglass. Uh, but the others, an amazing bunch of people, group of people, of whom Ward, I think, was one of the leading lights. So that's why I've tried to put him back into the, into the mix, to return him to the story uh, that we have, that we've been trying to tell over the last fifty, sixty years. What sort of audience did you imagine for this biography? I don't know if I don't know if I I was thinking of an audience. I never write for an audience. I write out of sheer selfishness because it's something that interests me. Uh, and uh, and because I, I think in Ward's case it 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 bugged me, it nagged at me that I I couldn't get at him in an earlier effort. And I was I was damned if I was going to miss the opportunity to take another stab at him. Uh, so I didn't really write for a particular audience, but I think the audience of the series uh, in which the book is published is an audience that tries to to identify and to explore the lies of black individuals about whom less is known. Uh, and I think that's where Ward, Ward fits in. Perfect. And what do you want readers to take away from this biography, having read it? There's a price to pay for struggling against racial discrimination and for the fight to be acknowledged as an equal in this society. There's a price individual pays, and they have paid that price throughout the history of the United States. Um, Sometimes the price is poverty, as in the case, or exile, as in the case of Ward. Uh, Sometimes, as in some of the biographical essays that I wrote back in 1986 when I excluded Ward, some people who promoted temperance turned to drink. Some, you know, there's a point in the struggle, in the long arc of the struggle, where an element of desperation set in, sets in, when there's despair, and also when the society seems to to, to demand a pound of flesh for your attack on it. And that to me, as a person who was not born in the United States, uh, is one of the, it was one of the, 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 the realizations that I came to very late in doing this sort of work, that people who struggle against the system 
really end up paying an awful price in all sorts of ways even among those who are who are recognized as giants like frederick douglas i mean um they become the conscience of the society they say to the society uh live up to your principles it's all we ask uh, and the society says in effect no or they fudge it they say yes but uh, and it's terribly frustrating uh, so as I'm writing stuff I'm writing on people like Ward I try to inhabit his mind uh, and to try and understand the deep sense of frustration that he must be the, and the and the sense of despair that he that many times he must be f facing and how does he resolve it and how does he move on to to keep struggling it's 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 uh so i have i leave uh, a biography like ward deeply sympathetic to the depths of the commitment of these people to the fight for equality and also uh, understanding why they would have they would have given up yeah and whether America and why America has historically been incapable of living up to its first principles sometimes it moves towards it and then it retreats yeah it does it all the time uh, and it may be that this biography comes out of a time comes out at a time when we are in another one of those retreats where people are talking of banning books and deciding what you should have in your curriculum and your course and what things you can teach we are and it always centers on issues of race or invariably it centers on issues of race and we are in another one of those moments so my hope is that the book uh, will not will uh, come at a time when people are thinking about these issues again and how we confront uh, the system's ability and willingness to retreat from what it should be doing and its promises. So that that sounds like a, a very negative way to end a conversation, doesn't it? It's it's a good takeaway, though. I will say that much. Uh, well, like you said, Dr. Black, that we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you again for being so generous with your time. Uh, so one last question here. What are you working on now? Ooh. <laughs> I am writing a history of football, that is soccer. Real football in, in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I have always been, it, it, it is my way of sort of returning to my roots uh, in retirement. Um, and uh, it's a way to try and understand the, history, the, the fact that in 2006, 
Trinidad and Tobago went to the World Cup. And at that time, they were the smallest nation in the world to ever go to the World Cup. Uh, so I'm trying to understand what led to that, which was an amazing achievement until the next World Cup when Iceland, of all places, went to the World Cup. Um, but um, so that's what I'm doing now, and I'm deep into it, uh, and it keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> Wonderful. So are you looking specifically just at that national team that made the World Cup, or are you looking at the... No, no, I'm looking at the, the entire history from, okay. its, from the organization of the sport in 1908, down to 2006. Oh, wonderful. Uh, because it also gives us gives me an insight. It gives me an opportunity to, thought, to talk about larger social and political movements that are wrapped into sport and all that without getting uh, too culturally esoteric. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. That sounds wonderful. As someone that loves football, I will definitely look out for that. Um... Good. So, uh, I, I mean, it sounds like a wonderful project. I'm, I'm definitely going to look out for it. I'm sure some listeners will as well. Um, well, Dr. Richard Blackett, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, take care. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, Omari. Absolutely.